Ben Schultz, the one and only. Thanks for coming on, bud. I'm going to start with Every Second Counts. Talk to us about uh, this lecture that you teach. Yeah, sure. You know, and first of all, thanks for for having me on. I've, I love I love your guys' show, and to look back at the number of guys that have been on here, and I'm just uh, I'm honored to be on. So thanks. The basis of of the whole thing is is that time is is our kind of biggest enemy, and we've gotten into this world that's just extremely polarized, right? Whether it's politically or socially, or really in all facets of life, it seems like you have to pick a side right now, and and that's kind of crept its way into the fire service, unfortunately, about, you know, who's most important, us or them. And uh, and to be clear, I mean, I, I exist and my job exists to be there for them, to be there for the public. But I think people on the other side of the coin take that as if you're saying they come first, then we're uh, advocating walking through walls of fire at any cost. And that's not really the case. The fact is, is the public and the fire service has the same enemy, and it's time. It's time in the IDLH, and if we have the same enemy, then we can have the same solution, which is is speed. So that's kind of where the class picks up in terms of how to get more efficient on the fire ground and reduce not only the victim's time inside the building, but reduce our time inside the building. Because really, our safety and their safety doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. So what kind of feedback do you get from your lectures? You know, I think that the biggest thing for some people, it's it's been the, the lecture's been really well received. For some people, there's, you know, the, the comments I hear back or the little bit of pushback I hear from time to time is, you know, counting a single pound or a couple of seconds. Is it really worth it? You know, how how into the weeds are you going to get on this stuff? I think you, you get in there as, as far as possible, but you do it in training. You know, this is not, I'm not asking people to do this on the fire. This is all preparation for the fire ground. You know, we're, we're a profession and we need to treat it that way. I, I get that it's a blue collar job, but it's okay to take a white collar approach to it and really dive into the details. So, you know, I, I kind of wrap up the lecture with a short video of uh, Usain Bolt, the world record sprinter. The narration is talking about he already has the world record and he's trying to get faster, you know, and he's trying to do it by decreasing how long each step is actually his foot contact on the ground is by milliseconds. Like that's what they're looking at for a 10 second race. They're trying to figure out how to shave milliseconds for a record that he already has. And if he doesn't achieve it, it's no big deal. It's, you know, no one's going to die. No one's, taking away his birthday or anything like that. And then here we are where we have a, a job where we have the ability to intervene in, in life and death situations. And people are saying, well, it's only five seconds. It's only 10 seconds. Like, yeah, it matters. It's, it's a huge deal. So I think we can be, we can do a better job of being a little more professional in the approach of looking at that every second counts and that every ounce counts when we're doing this. If some uh, athlete can do it for a 10 second race, and we certainly can. And all it does is it improves outcomes for the public and it improves our chances of going home. They're not mutually exclusive pursuits. So I think if people keep that in mind, we can all win and we don't have to be kind of quite so divisive as, as we've been. I like your story about Usain Bolt. I mean, we have a very similar thing, but instead of one 10 second race, we have like five or six, right? So from getting out the door is one of them. 
It's like a, it's like multiple hundred meter dashes. Right. Yeah. And so if you add up, Hey, we could be a second faster here, two seconds faster here. By the time you get done with all these little 10 second races, when you get to the front door, 30 seconds, now you're 30 seconds, right? How long can you hold your breath on the inside? Well, that also talk about fire doubling. Exactly. I mean, they say 30 seconds, but now they're saying as little as 17. So my question is, you're a part of a crew now. So how do you get all of your crew on the same page? Well, yeah, I think if when I went to classes early on, I, I go to some classes and, and you walk out and be like, man, that was great stuff. But I, I'm not really in a position to institute that amount of change. And I hope people walk away from from this class and, and what they hear today and realize that, you you know, you can make change immediately that affects the fire ground. So before talking about crew change, it's, it starts with the individual, right? Because it's, it's what we have the most control of. So starting at a, at a personal level, you know, I use the, I use the, uh, the example in the class of, of masking up. I think that is, it is the, probably the first place you can start from a skill position or a skill approach to making yourself and everyone else faster on the fire ground because it's one of the few skills that we have to do in almost any assignment right so if i get assigned search if i get assigned ventilation going to the roof if i'm assigned fire attack right all those things require masking up so if i'm faster at masking up if i practice that one thing i've gotten faster at three different assignments if not more so i use that you know kind of as as a starting point and then, I, you know, looking at other individual skills, you know, laddering for one, single man forcible entry, uh, stretching lines, right? Any of those, if I, if I break those down and clean those up, I mean, any one assignment is basically just a collection of, of single tasks. So if I improve any one task, I improve the whole assignment. Taking it further, we start looking at the crew part of it. Once everyone is improving their individual skills, and we start looking at how we get away from the rig. That tailboard efficiency is a huge place to save save time. And I I learned that through. I don't know why it took that long to to learn this, but it was uh, somewhere five or six years after being at West Metro. Brian Brush and I, along with the crew at Station Ten, were working on vertical ventilation times. And instead of just looking at start to finish time, we kind of we timed how long it took us to get away from the rig, how long it took us to get to the roof, and how long it took us to go from roof to the vent hole open. And uh, really noticed that there was a big disparity in how long it took pairs of people to get away from the rig. And noticed that that was a huge place for, for time savings. So that can come down to tool placement, equipment spec, but having a, a process that you work through over and over and over and, and examine where you're trying to shave one second here, one second there, where collectively you end up saving a lot more time. And that's that's that idea of scientific management, which has been around since the early 1900s in multiple industries and just applying it to the fire service. So then you're also teaching hands-on, uh, you do the exponential engine with uh, Chris Slayer and Brian Brush, too, like you mentioned Brush earlier, but Slayer, also very good dudes. What's so rewarding about the hands-on? The best part for me is especially with younger firefighters, because one of the biggest reasons I got into teaching was so that 
that firefighters were learning stuff early in their career that took me way too long to learn. There's so many things I, I didn't get introduced to until like third year, fifth year, last, you know, I'm always learning something new. And I want people to get that in their first year. I want them to get it in their second year. You know, I want them to get it when they're, when they're really engaged and when they're still a, a sponge for the job. On the flip side of that, having a, a, you know, a, a veteran firefighter, a senior firefighter come through a class and who's got an open mind to trying something new and, and showing them something that maybe they hadn't seen in their 20-year career and all of a sudden the, the job got a little easier and, and sparked a little fire under them can be just as rewarding. So it's, it's multifaceted. I mean, I just enjoy every, every part of teaching and, and just spreading the knowledge that people passed on to me. I mean, none of this stuff is mine. I'm just a vessel for the information. I mean, you've been working kind of all over the country, Southern California, then Colorado, now you're down in Florida. Like, what spurred those moves? So Southern California was kind of where I got my feet wet and dipped my toe in the water of uh, of this career. My wife was in grad school out there at the time, and, and we just knew we weren't going to stay there, just mostly because it was so expensive. So we started looking elsewhere, and I ended up testing for West Metro and uh, flying back and forth, and that's how I ended up there. And I loved working there. It was a great place. I loved Colorado. I loved the guys. I miss the guys there a lot. Great district to work in. But uh, over the years, we didn't have any family there, and uh, we've got two little kids now, and wanted to have family in our lives a little more. And I had never lived away from the ocean until I moved to Colorado, and I missed it every single day. So uh, we were ready to get back closer to family and back to the ocean, and, and Florida kind of fit the bill for, for both of those things. So that's how we ended up down here. So then after 15 years in the fire service, how do you maintain that passion? You know, in, in all honesty, it's, it's been fairly easy for me. I think a lot of it's surrounding myself with the people that I'm, I'm around. I've been really fortunate to work on uh, – really good crews and have good officers. So that helps certainly a lot with uh, kind of day-to-day morale. But then, the, you know, in the teaching side of it, the group of guys that I've been exposed to, um, whether it's been with the Fire by Trade group or Irons and Ladders or when things go bad or Brothers and Belt, like all these guys are just amazing. They just continue to, to spur me on to learn more and get better. But uh, in all honesty, on a little deeper level, you know, I, I first got into this because I wanted to make a difference. You know, I think like most people, you want to make a difference. You want to have a job that, that contributes, you know, that's something that's, that's bigger than you leaves the world a little better. But over the years, I've had kind of a dubious distinction of having a, uh, a really long list of losing friends and family at, at a young age. And I've gone through a lot of loss that way. And that's really kind of driven me to I just, you know, my approach to the job is I'm in a position, I picked a career where I have the chance to intervene in other people's lives and hopefully keep their friends and their family from having to experience uh, that same amount of loss. And so I take a pretty personal approach to the job. And that sometimes makes it harder than probably should be, but it keeps my, my foot on the gas pedal for sure. I skipped around departments a little bit myself and I've noticed that it can be kind of difficult to come in as the new guy with, with so much experience. So how did you navigate that? I don't, you probably have to ask the guys I work with, but, uh, no, you know, I, I, it's like anything else. I come here, I try to be, uh, certainly want to be humble in my career. And, um, 
I don't know everything and never will. So I got here. I came here with a very open mind and I was excited. I heard lots of good things. I was very specific about the departments I was going to test for in Florida. Rick George, who worked down here at the time at Palm Beach County, was was really helpful and in helping kind of steer me towards places he thought would uh, would be a good fit. And West Palm was one of them. And so I was really excited to come here. I was excited to get the job. And I took it as like I was starting over. You know, I kept my mouth shut and head down through academy and recruit training and probation. And when the opportunity arose, if, if people asked me questions about previous experience or you know, what I did here or what I did there, then I was happy to share, but I tried not to force that on anybody. Um, that seemed to be received pretty well. And then after getting off probation, you know, some more opportunities have opened up uh, on the department to be on some committees and have my hands in a, a few different things. And, and I've worked with really good crews, again, a, a really, uh, really supportive officers, really supportive battalion chiefs. And so it's, it's worked out really well. In your lecture, you talk about being lightweight. You know, um, firefighters like to carry a lot of things with them. I mean, other than the tools we have to carry and, you know, the, the stuff we need to put fires out, saws, ladders, hose, whatever. But you're more referring to just what's on you and staying lightweight that way. I, I kind of like that. I don't carry too much, you know, on me. I mean, bailout kit, a wrench, gloves. I mean... That's really it. Talk a little bit about that. Before coming into the fire service, I, I had two activities or, or passions that, that have served me really well in the fire service. I, I started scuba diving at a young age. I worked at a dive shop for about five years up in New Jersey. So, you know, cold water, low visibility wreck diving for the most part. And then the other was uh, climbing, rock climbing, ice climbing and, and mountaineering that I got into in college. And I've taken a lot from both of those into this career. The climbing side of it, particularly the mountaineering side of it, I got introduced to, you know, a form of climbing, which is really my, my favorite type is alpine climbing, where you're, you know, typically traveling on snow, rock and ice all in the same route. There's a couple, there's two different approaches to that. You know, one kind of being more of an expedition style where you're carrying a, a lot with you because the goal is that your your safety is built through redundancy it's by being prepared for every possible situation or or weather out a storm and then the other side is the light and fast alpinist approach which means your speed is is through safety it's getting up and getting down as fast as possible i love that style of climbing and and i look at the fire service and i think the fire service kind of leans towards the the expedition style the the problem with that is that you you overload yourself with so much in an effort to be safe that, you know, you become ineffective and you actually increase your amount of time in the ideal age. And then you increase the possibility of, of having an issue. So with the light and fast stuff, you know, I, I first I just kind of looked at it from a personal standpoint. I really try not to be that uh, walking toolbox where just because I have pockets, I got to fill them with everything I can get my hands on. But then started taking that as I got into positions on departments with hopefully a little more influence, you know, looking at our equipment, you know, the difference between duo safety and alkalite ladders. And you have departments that are using 60 minute air cylinders because guys are running out of air. It's like, well, are they running out of air because your department's out of shape in general? Or are they running out of air because they, they don't have a big enough cylinder? You know, 
when we could be doing the same, you know, be more effective with a 30 or 45 minute cylinder or turnout gear that is like we're, you know, getting the highest, highest thermal protection. But in the process of doing that, we're weighing ourselves down more. We're reducing our ability to dissipate our own body heat. So in an effort to protect us, we're actually increasing the, the chance of having a problem. So um, I think it's really important that we that we really scrutinize not only our personal gear and what we're carrying, but how we spec our rigs, you know. I think a lot of times because this is it's still a blue collar trade that people get afraid, like it almost gets a negative connotation if you kind of kind of nerd out on it. But there's times where that's that's important. And this is one of them. I think you, you can really start to, you know, I pick apart stuff down to ounces and, and single pounds um, because they all compound, just like the whole every second counts. It's kind of every ounce counts. That all adds up to being faster on the fire ground which is not just about me. It's about the, the public we're there to serve. And it's about going home to our families. Again, it's our safeties don't have to be mutually exclusive. We totally agree that ounces turn into pounds, seconds turn into minutes. Where does fitness come into play? Fitness is, uh, it's one of those, I look at, there's kind of four things that we can truly control. There's so many variables on the fire ground and, and what we do day to day that are are beyond our control, but we have kind of four things that we have a lot of control over. And one of them is fitness. I look at it as like fitness training equipment to some degree, pretty much our personal equipment and then our mindset. And so fitness is one of those things that we can, we really can take full, just about full control over. So there's no reason not, not to be prepared for it from a light and fast standpoint. Fitness plays a huge role in it because for the, you know, the expedition's approach to things, you're carrying so much weight, you're moving much slower that your your fitness really only needs to be geared towards this kind of steady, slow pace plodding uphill. Whereas the light and fast approach, the idea that I want to be in and out of the ideal age as fast as possible requires a higher level of fitness. It requires you know, that kind of interval approach to things, being able to move quickly in spurts and then do a strenuous amount of work and then move quickly to the next task. So training in a in a manner that, that sets you up for that is a, absolutely a key portion to uh, kind of that, that light and fast approach. And not only that, I mean, in the fire service, it's, it's even more, it's more imperative than even look at it in climbing. You know, climbing, they, the common saying is that, you know, get to the summit, you're only halfway there because you still have to descend, which is where a lot of a lot of mountaineering accidents happen. They don't happen on the way up. A lot of them happen on the way down after you're already fatigued and tired. Now, we complicate that. Imagine I get assigned a search and I go in and I've used up a third or half of my cylinder and now I find a victim and now I got to bring them out. I mean, imagine if every mountain climber, every time they got to a summit, they then had to drag their partner all the way back down the mountain, you know? So we make things exponentially harder for ourselves by the nature of what we're doing. So you have to have a, a level of fitness that, that matches that. All right. Then where does mindset come into play? My mindset at work is pretty much all work. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, I like to joke around and, and stuff, but you, you pretty much will never, the guys always give me a hard time. You don't find me sitting still very long. I never have. I want to be a hundred percent present when I'm there. Um, so usually, you know, it's, I tend to be pretty all, you know, pretty much all business when I'm there. 
training every day for sure. And that can vary, you know, that can vary. I work at our tech rescue station. So our, our training is uh, split among any number of disciplines, uh, but training every day. I don't always work out at the firehouse. A lot of times I use the firehouse as my day off or as a rest day and kind of beat myself up on the, on the days that I'm home, but fully engaged, you know, if I'm not, if it's not uh, hands-on training, then it's, I'm in, in the books or on the computer or whatever, but fully present for the, the time I'm there. And, and I find if I'm fully present there, then it lets me be a lot more present at home uh, with the family too. So uh, kind of works both ways. And then on the fire ground, I'm looking to accomplish as much as possible in a short amount of time. That's really my goal. And hopefully through training with my officer and they build a level of comfort with me, I like to split as much as, as possible, whether it's on search or if we're outside truck or writ. I kind of love that the OVM idea on position and and division of labor because you're just getting that much more work done at at the same time. So if they're comfortable enough with me to do things like that, that we've built through training, then that's what I'm looking to do is just try and maximize my performance in, in this short amount of time. I'm a pretty big believer in having that inside outside team, definitely on the truck, but that does kind of add some responsibility to some of those roles. What are your thoughts on having like tryouts for... Uh-oh. I know this is, this is a more complex problem, but, uh, having tryouts for those roles and responsibilities that have a little bit more weight if you have a negative outcome. Yeah, that's, it's certainly a uh, popular topic. I think that, uh, you know, every, obviously every department's makeup is different. There are departments that, you know, don't have any trucks or don't have a heavy rescue. And doesn't mean that those tasks don't still have to happen. But I'm a I'm a fan of having uh, it, at a minimum, at least having a certain minimum standard or level of certifications to be on, you know, heavy rescues, to be on uh, your aerial devices, to be on your, you know, be on your trucks, because I think they just require a, a different skill set. And the more you can keep those crews together, there's a lot more room for division of labor and for, I guess, choreographing how a truck works and heavy rescues operate and things, you know, working on a roof and and the OVM position, all that stuff. Whereas, you know, coming off an engine and I'm by no means dumbing down the engine. I love, I love being on an engine. It's still, the line goes in the door. We staff the line appropriately that's kind of the goal all the time. Whereas truck work and heavy rescues, like they just have to be a lot more fluid and dynamic. And I think the more you can keep those crews together and each individual has their, has a higher skill set that allows them to have that divisional labor and to branch off, then it just creates such a better opportunity for fire ground coordination than if, if you're constantly changing those crews up and kind of having to learn it on the fly. I do like this whole tryouts thing though yeah you're gonna bring it up at the next union meeting yeah i mean <laughs> no probably won't go over well but i mean what do you think ben i mean realistically should fire departments have tryouts for certain positions you know i look at us as as which is obviously a term thrown around a lot as occupational athletes and every other sport in the world pretty much has tryouts and you battle against someone for for a spot i don't really have a problem with that you could go down that route 
But what I think is really important is that it's not just about the one person getting to be the fastest. It's, it's about your whole crew getting faster. Yeah, I mean, that is one thing. You can be the fastest on the fire ground, but if you're the dumbest guy and you don't know what you're doing, you're actually going to probably turn yourself into one of the worst. Yeah, like you, do you want the guy who can lift a ton but he can't spell it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Agreed. It's beyond just just the hard skills, right? It's got to be it's got to be the whole package and that's where that whole effective versus efficient thing kind of comes into play. I I talk obviously a lot about efficiency. In the pursuit of efficiency, you can't sacrifice quality. You can't sacrifice being effective, right? It's not how fast can I turn out a crappy car off the assembly line? It's got to be I want to turn out the the Porsche or the Lamborghini, but I want to do it as quickly as possible. It's like masking up. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, standard should be everybody under 20 seconds. Most of us are in the 10 to 15 second time. But I mean, if you're doing it under 10 seconds, but you got skin showing or you don't have good seal and you're losing air. You're a total soup sandwich, but you're fast. What's the point, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So much of our job comes down to doing things efficiently because we're always on the clock. How should we bring that into training? Like, should we use a clock? Should we use a stopwatch? Timing everything? Yeah, the clock is huge. I, I love the clock. I definitely hammer that in the lecture. I think the stopwatch absolutely needs to, to come back into the fire service on a regular basis. The problem is, I, I forget, what do I call it in my slide? The stopwatch suffers from uh, academy syndrome where, you know, guys who get hired they go through academy and probation and they, they go through, you know, maybe it's a year and a half of their life of being timed for everything. And that clock like makes or breaks their career. I mean, they might lose their job because of a stopwatch essentially. And so what happens is it gets this, you know, negative connotation associated with it. And then they get off probation and no one ever wants to see a stopwatch again. You know, I mean, if, if I, if I grow up being uh, with my dad, beat me with a belt. Um, when I move out of the house, I'm going to wear sweatpants and board shorts the rest of my life. So it gets this, it, it really gets this, this negative attached to it, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to continue to be this punitive tool because it's our best. It really is our best training metric. You know, if I were going to fires every shift and I get, there's, there's a handful of places in the country that, that get to do this. But for most of us, I'm not going to a fire every shift. I can't compare last last shift's fire to this shift's fire. And I'm certainly not pulling people out of buildings every shift. Um, so I have to have another way to to measure whether the changes I'm making are are working or not. And uh, and the clock does that. Not only does the clock show us our deficiencies, but it also shows us you know where we're improving and if we're on the right track. So I I like to bring it in to training uh, as often as possible. And sometimes that's, you know, very formal and we're timing each other and writing down times and timing different pairs of firefighters, different partners, things like that. Other times I'm just, I'm just keeping track of it for myself just to have a, have a rough idea. Uh, I think the important part though is if you're gonna time things, 
don't just do the start to finish thing. That's easy because you really don't learn anything from it. Really get into the weeds on it and look at what you're doing as a layered process and time, each step or each layer of that. Because that's where you're really going to see is your is your process um, improving and, and where can you change one step at a time versus just trying to go, well, that didn't work and try something totally different. I think the downside of using the clock all the time is like, I know we saw it at our station. We use the same hydrant. The rig was parked in the same spot because we wanted to have a constant so that we could our, keep getting faster and yeah. faster. And it was a competition, which was, there was good to that, but you're kind of setting yourself up for failure because then when things start to change and there's variables added in, like we're great at fighting a fire at our firehouse, but what happens when we go out into the street? So yeah, how changes? Yeah. How important is like switching that up? It's a great point. And it comes up. Certainly. Uh, I've had people ask me about that after the presentation. One thing I like about what I do, it, you know, people are like, well, you're, you're doing this demonstration of masking up in this perfect environment where you're doing a, you know, throwing a ladder in a perfect environment. And, and I absolutely acknowledge that we certainly don't work in that world, but there's still a huge benefit to that in the fact that like one of the videos I use is from Captain uh, uh, Dale Peekle. He does a seven-second mask up, mask up. It's the fastest that I've seen. I use that to show, like, well, maybe in the real world, Dale doesn't mask up in seven seconds when he shows up and the mom's yelling at him that the kid's inside or whatever. The weather's terrible or the dog's running at him. There's any number of you know, variables. But if his baseline is seven seconds, he's built in a massive buffer compared to someone who masks up in 30 seconds, right? So if, if your baseline is already really high, then you throw variables at those people and it's, it's going to be really, it's going to be a really bad day. So people that are really proficient, it's even if they're not going to hit those times on the mark on the scene, they've certainly built in a big buffer to deal with those variables. But along with that, if we go out, you know, we still go out and we stretch buildings and ladder different buildings in different scenarios, right? And we'll still time them, but they're not going to be something that I'm going to go back and I'm not going to compare one building to another building to another building because it's, it's, that's really not a fair way to do it. 